Well, good morning to you. Psalm 120 is where I would invite you to turn this morning. Psalm 120 in the Old Testament, page 440 in our church Bibles. So just so you know, the reason why we're at Psalm 120 today is that we've been spending all summer in the Psalms. And we've been trying, there's five books in the Psalms, as you may know, and we've been trying to go book to book. And here we are in the final book, book five. And I think what we're going to do, which you'll hear about later, is spend our remaining time in this, this last book, remaining time in the summer, all spared and Lord willing, that is. Psalm 120, I'm going to read that psalm in just a moment, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. And as, as our pattern here, if you have a question about what was said or sung, I read this morning, I would try to do my best to answer those questions for you. It's a pleasure to be here this morning on the Lord's Day. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and let's pray. Oh God and Father, we thank you for your electing love which has saved us from our sin and brought us safely to your son. And we would ask this morning that you would forgive us when we have not done what you require or, Father, when we have done what you forbid. And this morning, would you please give us clarity of thought and and myself brevity of expression and in genuine sense to all of us of meeting you and revering you in these printed pages. And, Father, we just take a moment to pray for our nation, and specifically for the state of Missouri. May those who have been given the public trust keep the public trust there. And may the citizens be civil, orderly, law-abiding, and patience. And may justice flow there, like a river, as Amos said, and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Holy Spirit, be be our teacher. Convert, convict, and comfort. And bring glory, bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it is one of the most destructive heresies which teaches that somehow genuine Christians can be exempt from pain. That Christians are somehow immune from great heartache, from frustrations, that they are never crushed by facing the experiences and the failure of their humanity and they're not shattered by the awareness of their own sin or the sins of others laid to bear on their life. Says the theologian Frank Ballard, wherever a person is, the one thing certain is that trouble will come. Says the Apostle Paul to Christians, Acts 14, 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. Consequently, those who go through life teaching us that it's possible to live in the high tide all the time and that low tides are not useful or part of a, quote, genuine Christian experience, those who teach this muddle-headedness are to be pitied 
and frankly, they're to be avoided. Likewise, those who would go through their given life chasing some kind of dream life of perfection on earth, a life that has everything going splendid all the time, are to to be equally pitied, but are to be helped. Because if this is you, then I can tell you on the authority of God's word that you're living in the realm of unreality. You're living in the realm of unreality. And I can also tell you by way of experience that there's more than an even chance you are probably a very, very frustrated and impossible individual to satisfy. So, staying on that line, think with me for a moment. If you wanted to form a cult, if you wanted power over people, access to their money and to their honor, how would you do this? How how would you get uh, to them? How would you target them? What would be your message? Well, if it was me, I would target Christians like those from West Cohasset, and I would say something like this. Do you really think you are enjoying the peace, joy, and love which Christ promised? I mean, don't you hunger for a deeper peace with God, a deeper, more satisfying walk with God? Don't you, don't you really want to go deep? That's what I would ask. And then I would say this, for example, where is your victory over sin? Why, why are you failing all the time? Where is the higher life which is promised in Romans 6? Because, you know, cults oftentimes use the Bible to push their points. Where is the higher life which is promised in Romans 6, 6 and 7, which says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So if I was a cult leader, I'd rip that verse hemorrhaging from its context in Romans 5 and 7, and I would keep saying gently and real piously, Tell me where the fruit is of the indwelling Christ in your life. Where is the power in your life? Where is the victory? I don't see it. Don't you want better? And here's the kicker, right? Don't you deserve better? And as I would be trying to draw you into my false church, and I would be trying to continue to manipulate you, to pull you in, I would have hoped that you have never went through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, And I would also hope that you never somewhere along your Christian pilgrimage learn the three tenses of every Christian salvation. The three tenses of every Christian salvation, which actually comes from Romans 1 and 8, which says essentially this, in Christ, just like our catechism question said this morning, in Christ and only in Christ, I have been saved from sin's penalty. That's justification. I am being saved from sin's power. That's sanctification. And in heaven, and only in heaven, I will be saved from sin's presence. That's glorification. And this means that the Christian life is a journey. It's a pilgrimage. We are, as the title says, a pilgrim in progress. So at the beginning of the 20th century, and if you know anything about the beginning of the 20th century, you'll know that people said we're just that far away from utopian society. T.R. Glover says this, the word pilgrim is dropping out of religious speech. And Robert Louis Stevenson's sentiment is taking its place. And then he quotes, The world is so full of a number of things, I'm sure we should all be happy as kings. And then just a few years later, World War I comes. And then just a few years later, World War II's come. And then there's a Korean War. Then there's a Vietnam War. And on and on and on. And the 20th century is marked by blood. So the Christian has been saved from hell, through the cross, for the new creation, heaven. But, But now... Today, we're pilgrims. We are pilgrims in progress. Pilgrims 
in progress in a very muddled and messy world. And, and if you and I refuse to believe this, if we think that there's a secret out there that we're missing or God's held back something, then not only are we denying the obvious from, from the biblical witness and just plain old history, but again, beloved, I say to you, you're living in the realm of unreality. And, and can you imagine the level of psychological pain one would carry if that was them? And again, I have to repeat this. There's more than an even chance if this is you, that you are a very frustrated person. And at this point in your existence, you are impossible to please. So if you would look down in your Bible, verse 5 of Psalm 120. And we're going to go right to our, our first point. The first point is the big picture. And you'll, in a moment, you'll see why I gave it that heading. Verse 5. Do you see it there? What a weird place to start, right? But like our local college here, it's the best place to start. Verse 5. That was free. Woe to me, I dwell in Meshech. Okay, Meshech is a far-off tribe that dwelled on the northern shores of the Caspian Sea, thousands of miles from Palestine in southern Russia. And they were known in the ancient world as just being rebels and agitators. And then he says, Woe to me, I dwell in Meshech, and that I live among the tents of Kedar. Uh, Kedar is a wandering rebel tribe to the southeast in, in the South Arabian desert. So these places are thousands of miles apart. So you have to remember that, that these psalms, they're lyrics to a song. So there's symbolism here and, and there's metaphors that are being dropped here. Meshech then is the very, very far north point of Palestine. Kedar is very, very far south point of Palestine. So these are two very, very far places from, if you would, the place where the writer writes. It's, it's, to be honest with you, it's probably as far north as he knows and as far south as he knows. So when you get to Psalm 120, especially verse 5, what you're seeing there, this is a metaphor for a, for a hostile, muddled world in which our writer and God's people of every age find themselves in. Because if you don't understand that right from the beginning of the psalm, then you can twist it to mean whatever you like. He's not in two places at one time here. He's thinking metaphorically, symbolically. So what he's saying is this, woe to me that I'm stuck in the middle of this kind of messy, muddled world which opposes God, right? It's enough that I oppose God. I get that, but at least I have the vehicle of repentance. The world won't even repent. Now, what I need to tell you right off the bat that Psalm 20, as we read there, is a song of ascent. So Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134 are songs of ascents. So if you were here last week, we learned the songs of Asaph, Psalm 73 all the way to 83. That particular heading gave it a particular meaning. And this week we're coming to, to the songs of ascent. And so this week is Psalm 120, next week is Psalm 121, the week after, Lord willing, is Psalm 122. So these are songs for the journey. These are songs for the pilgrim in progress. You like music? I love music. We need songs. We need songs for the journey. If you would, we need theme songs. I have a few. They're pretty corny, but we need them. And so when we come to these sets of three, and that's how the whole 15 songs of ascent work. They're, they come in sets of three, and they each have the same kind of sequence. And it goes like this. Psalm 120, I'm in distress and I'm in a messy, muddled world. Then Psalm 121, you can see it there if your Bible is open. Okay, what, what do I do? Because I'm in such a world that is messy and muddled that opposes God. Well, what do I do? 
Well, you know, you try to find the perfect occupation and the perfect location and the perfect recreation, you know, body bucks, brains. No, the psalmist says. No, that's placebo. It'll give you the impression that it will help, but this is what you do. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The, the Hebrew word for help has the idea of mortar. Who, who holds things together? Who holds everything together? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Okay, so then what does our Lord do? Psalm 120, verse 5. He watches over us. And we need to know that in a kind of messy, muddled world. And okay, so then where is our pilgrimage leading us to? We're pilgrims in progress. Where are we headed? Well, we're headed there. Psalm 122, you can see it there. Verses one and two, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So this psalmist in its original context is headed to the city of God. Jerusalem, the holy city. New Testament Christians reads this. And says, no, we're not going to Jerusalem exactly, but we are going to the city of God with the people of God. We're headed towards heaven. That's where, that's when our pilgrimage will be over. At last, says the New Testament Christian, the pilgrimage is over. We're home. We're there. God's people, God's place. But now, okay, so now we're going to answer our cult leader Anyone who tries to disrupt and undermine our Christian life, hounding us, you know, by voice, email, text, tweet, post, letter, book, class, or blog, asking me, where is your higher life? Where is your deeper walk? Where is your victory over sin? Where's your power? Where's your joy? Where is it? My answer is going to be, we're not there yet. We have not been saved from sin's present yet. We are not glorified yet. I'm not in Psalm 122, verse 5, peace in her walls, security in her citadels. No, right now I'm on the road. I'm not been glorified yet. I'm a pilgrim. I'm in verse 5 of Psalm 120 in the tents of Meshech, living among the tents of Kedar. Right now I'm with rebels and warmongers and troublemakers. Verse 3b, Psalm 120, those with deceitful tongues. Now, can you see how this would help not only have a proper, sensible understanding of the psalm, but it helps us in our flesh and blood existence in the world that is described by the psalmist. Because we, we are now, right now, living among unbelievers. Right now, we're here, but most of us don't spend most of our time here. Most of us spend most of our time out in the world. That's why the psalmist says in verse 5, woe to me. It's a cry. Woe to me because I'm not home yet. So you have to ask yourself the question, Do you ever cry for heaven, for our real home? You say, well, do you? Well, yeah, usually I do when I'm in trouble. I'm in a fetal position, 4.30 a.m. in the morning in my bed. That's when I usually do it, unfortunately. Well, why do you do that? Well, because the difficulty of our present state means that victory is not our only cry. Now, now of course, if you are purposely, you know, locked up in house, keeping your life lived just beyond your front porch, you know, family only, then you may have seeming victory. But if you're honest, you're you're fighting paper soldiers. But you'll know that even that time will come to an end. However, as we go out into the world, as God's pilgrim with God's message, strangers, then verse five, then it becomes very real to us. us. So, So yes, for the original readers, they would have sung these songs on their way to the holy city. This was the annual pilgrimage that every, every good Jew would do. 
on their way to the holy city. But for the New Testament Christian, knowing that every one of those rites and every one of those rituals that they did in the Old Testament were laid to rest when Christ hung on a cross and was raised again. We come to these now with a bigger eye, a better mind, and this is why redemptive history is so, so important. So don't feel bad if you never make it to Jerusalem in your lifetime, okay? I do not want to go to Jerusalem as a tourist. I'll go as an evangelist, but not as a tourist. Okay, so so that's the big picture. That's our first point, okay? These are Psalms of Ascent. It takes us from the difficulty of the, of the present, the right here and now, to, to the very presence of God. That's going to be the key to our help here. And we're on this pilgrimage, and life is difficult. God's presence is real, but we're headed home. So these psalms then are dealing with the difficulty of living in a messed up, muddled world. And so we cry out to God, and then God comes and helps us. So then you need to know this, Psalm 120 Psalm 123, Psalm 126, Psalm 129, Psalm 132, that's that sequence of three, all deal in ways with how difficult life is for the people of God in this world. So for example, Psalm 122 and three, you can see it there if your Bible's open, we have endured much contempt, right? People despise me, God, because I'm your child, they hate me. Psalm 129.1, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Uh, men have harassed me. They've burdened my life, God. Psalm 132, verse 1, oh Lord, remember David and the hardship he endured. So these Psalms of Ascent are actually then speaking to reality. The reality of where God's people are. So then we move it to the 21st century. You've had a terrible day. This, the Psalm reflects this. You've been persecuted for Christ's sake. These psalms reflect this. You are denied access to things. You're denied access to people, to positions, and to pleasures because of your God loyalties. This psalm reflects this. But but beyond this, if you want to know God is with you on this road in this crazy world, then we go to these psalms because the psalms are not placebos. This is, if you would, super medicine for the soul. This is, as they would say about the Psalms, the soul's medicine chest. This is meat. This is drink. This is the living word. So this is Christ, isn't it? Psalm 124, 1. Remember, if the Lord, Lord, if Christ had not been on our side, verse 3, when, they ang- when their anger flared up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. Psalm 127, 1. Unless the Lord, how do they interpret the Lord? Christo, Greek. Christ, unless Christ builds his house, it's builders labor in vain. Psalm 131, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Christ. So do you want help? Well, we cry out and the Lord always answers his people so that when the day of trouble comes, when when it's all too much for you and, and you're like, please, can heaven just be now? I want to get to heaven now. No more death, mourning, crying, pain, I want to see my Lord face to face, Revelation 21, 4. When all that takes place, then we pray. And see, here's why the Psalms are so important. We pray, we pray these Psalms of ascent, these Psalms of heaven, and they point us, they point the pilgrims in progress to keep going, keep heading towards home, don't give up, keep persevering. So then, this is that third sequence, Psalm 122, Psalm 125, 128, 131, 134, as you read them, and you probably can do that for homework today, 
what you're going to find is those are psalms and songs for the journey. You're heading to, you're arriving to the, the, the city of God with, with the peace of God. Psalm 122 verse 1. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Psalm 133 2. I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul. These then are songs for heaven. Songs for the completion. Of our pilgrimage. Okay, that's the big picture then. You with me? 15 psalms that begin in Psalm 120, labeled songs of ascent. They come in sets of three, and they teach us that this world is trouble. It is not our home. It will give rise to us crying out for the Lord's help. He will help. And because our world is such a troubling place, when you take the mission into it, yes, there is a higher throne. But no, there isn't a higher life on earth in which we may escape all these difficulties and all these persecutions because of our God-centered loyalties. You see, that is crucial that you understand it. We can't escape it. It will be here as long as we're here. So that's point number one. That's the big picture. Point number two, then, the distressing picture. The distressing picture, because you can see there in verse one, the psalmist is in distress. Okay, so this is how you should remember these next three Sundays. Hassle, help, heaven. That's why I was helped. One of my sources said, label it. Psalm 120, hassle. Psalm 121, help. Where does my help come from? Psalm 122, heaven. Hassle, help, heaven. In fact, I'd write that down somewhere. Hassle this week. Help next week. Heaven the week after. Because Psalm 120 is not a victory psalm. It's not, it's just honest. If you or I have grown complacent in our Christian life and we've kind of set our life on cruise control, Psalm 120 reminds us that that the, the years that remain for us, they could turn on us. They may not be as cozy as we like. And that's important because, because when people are investigating Christianity, we need to tell them this. We need to tell that difficulties will become because you say yes to Jesus. In fact, that's our first subpoint there under heading number two. Believers get attacked, right? Verse one, I called on the Lord in my distress. Now, the Hebrew word for distress means trouble, affliction, tight spot, pain, anxieties, grief, trial, trouble. So, so he's not in heaven yet, right? It actually, it's a word picture for being shoved in this tiny space between two rocks. That's what the distress feels like. Well, why is he there? Verse two, save me from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. So he's being attacked. It's a verbal attack. People are lying about him. People are misrepresenting him and he's in distress. So when you look at that word there, this is what you need to understand. It's more than just people lying about him. There is this to be this sense in here that, that the truth that this man affirms, people are opposing so this is opposition against someone who's trying to live a holy life by God's truth. Anyone who is trying to live a life with God-given standards. That's why verse 7 says this, I am a man of peace. Do you see it there? But when they speak, they're for war. God's moral commands are love. They bring peace and order. But when humanity rejects them, no matter what, they, re they war with God. When humanity rejects the need for a savior... 
God's son. It wars with God. So there's this song that I have on my iPod. It's from the deep south. It's a spiritual song and it has a line, I've been lied on, cheated, talked about, you should hear it, mistreated. I've been used, scorned, talked about, sore as a bone. I've been up, down, and almost to the ground. That's the psalmist. That's verse 2. People are lying about me. They oppose the truth of God that I try to affirm. So verse 5 makes sense there. Woe to me. I dwell in Meshech. I live among the tents of Kedar. I'm in rebel territory, God. So do you ever feel this way? This believer is alone, isolated, in a tight spot. People are telling lies about him. They're misrepresenting him. And he is so far from his final destination. That's subpoint number one. He's under attack, but it also goes subpoint number two. Believers are not friends of the world. And because here, the reason why I gave such attention to verse five is the stress here is on the unfriendliness of the world for those who try and live a godly life. Verse five isn't a great place to be. That's why he says there, I'm in rebel tw- territory. In fact, again, if you look at the original Hebrew, it gives us understanding that he's not, he's not there. He's just passing through there. He's not going to be very, there very long. He understands this. But it's where I am right now. This is what it's like. Verse 6. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. You see? So there's this basic irreconcilability between the pilgrim's progress and the world which he dwells in. So he's starting to feel that. John Stott on this verse says this. This idea of being and behaving and feeling as a resident alien is to be very true for the Christian. Again, this idea of when we live here, being and behaving and feeling as a resident alien is very true for the Christian. So what's our comprehensive immigration plan, Christian? It's only one. Get to heaven. Get to heaven. We do not fit here so well. There, there is a void in us that nothing, even to the max, even to the max on this earth, can fill. That's why we are not locked into earthly, temporal things. Okay, so yes, we have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to shop, we have to dress, we have to fix our houses, we have to buy new things, we have to go to the stores, we need to rest, relax, entertain ourselves, buy nice things for ourselves, buy nice things for others. But we are not depending on them. We're not locked into them. We can enjoy them. However, when we start to depend on them, thinking they offer us more than God, when they begin to take the place of God, then we have fallen in love with the world. And one John tells us, if, if the love of the world is in us, then we can be sure that God's love isn't in us either. John Stott, in his wonderful book, it's a splendid book, The Living Church, at the very end, he has an historical appendix in which he writes out his, his dream for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. And his final dream says this, I have a dream of a church which is an expectant church whose members never settle down in material influence or comfort because they remember that they are strangers and pilgrims on earth. They remember they are to be actively waiting on her Lord's return. And you know what? The psalmist would say amen to John's dream. 
Amen. Because he's been around the block. He knows how this world opposes God-centered, therefore Christ-centered living. He knows that like a con man, the world will suck us in and then spit us out. This week I was thinking about the story of Hansel and Gretel. You remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? So I wanted to refresh my my mind. I got online, googled the story, and listened to this quote that I found. The story of Hansel and Gretel is a story of a very old woman who emerges and lures them inside into the promise of soft beds and delicious food. They comply, unaware that their hostess is a wicked witch who ambushes children to cook and eat them. That's the world. Come on. Come on, it's so great. Come on. Men's Health Magazine. It's a great magazine, but it would never tell you this. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and Christ is indwelling in you, so fight hard against sin. You'll never read that in there. They'll tell you to do more push-ups, 10 different ways. The newspapers, websites, they probably won't ask you, what do you think the God of creation thinks about what you are doing? What do you think? By the way, at this point in history in England, one out of every 100 males said that they will not enter marriage as a virgin. One, or excuse me, one out of 100 said they they will try to enter into marriage as a virgin. One out of 100. Os Guinness says that the world's policy on religion is a policy of containment. That nice little phrase, you'll be in my thoughts and prayers. So so what is the the modus operandi for Christianity in in our context? Well, if you want to be a religious person, go ahead. But the rest of us have better things to do with our life. But what they're saying is, is all this stuff that we've done this morning and will do for another 10, 12 minutes, it's all irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. It's nice, but it really doesn't mean anything. So I have a friend in Tennessee. He's a high school uh, football coach, very, very successful high high school football coach. He started coming to our church, and when, he, when we first started talking, he would say this all the time. He goes, oh, man, this is so great for the kids. The, the kids really need this. They really need this. And every time, every time he said that to me, I would say to him, every time, I'd say, yes, but you and I need this too. You and I need this too. Therefore, says Rico Tice, we will hear so much talk of the world about the world, but we'll hear nothing of the God who made it. Very last verse of the very last psalm and the whole book of Psalms says this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything, every person, every book, every blog, every post, every magazine, wherever, whatever, praise the Lord on earth as it is in heaven. That's where everything is headed to. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Every knee, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether they like it or not. Point number one, big picture, songs of the pilgrimage, songs that will safely take us to heaven. Point number two, the distressing picture, believers will be attacked. Believers aren't friends of the world. We are people of peace, but they want war, verses six and seven. There's this real irreconcilability between my progress as a pilgrim and the world which I live in. Sooner or later, my loyalties to Christ will be in conflict with the loyalties of this world. 
And so we love the world. Oh, please repent. Please believe on Christ. How can I help you? We are good citizens. But we do not love the world. Oh, my life would be ruined and empty if I don't have this or if I can't go there. If I have to give up this because of my devotion to Jesus. But again, and you have to say this because of the times. Don't be weird here. We got to eat. We got to sleep. We have to shop. We have to dress. We have to fix our houses. We need new cars. We need to go to the store. We need to rest, relax, entertain, buy nice things for ourselves, buy nice things for others. But we're not depending on them. We're not locked into them and we're certainly not thinking a la Deuteronomy 8 that because we have all those things it was all us I was walking this week with my son and I told him Deuteronomy 8 that says don't say by your power and your strength and by your hands all these things were produced by you just look at me go I've got a great work ethic and I got a great mind just look at me go God told his people don't say that no remember the Lord your God he's the one who gives you the ability to produce and so he confirms his covenant, says Moses. So you should know that I did my duty while I was on vacation. This is what I do when I, and you're a pastor. What do you do on vacation? Well, every time you go out to eat with your family, you have to pray, right? There's all aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews. What do you do? He prays. So we're in this restaurant and I sent my very first text prayer ever, Right? huge table, long table, loud place. There's no way everybody could have heard me pray. So you know what I did? I sent everybody a text at the table for my prayer. And I actually, one of the people at the table was an atheist. I sent it twice to her. (laughs) Big picture, distressing picture, then the necessary picture. This is where, this is, this is the good, happy ending kind of necessary picture. Verses 1 and 2, what does he do? He calls on the Lord. I call on the Lord, save me. That's the remedy here. Now, you, you have to understand, that's the remedy. This is of necessity. The psalmist wants to bring God into this situation. The word I call in the Hebrew is kara, and it means I summon God. I mean, do you feel the weight of that? I summon God. God, I I pray to God, I summon him. God, look at this culture that calls evil good and calls calls, uh, good evil. Save me from this culture that ignores your moral law. Save me from this culture that says Jesus is fine, but there's lots more like him. Save me from a culture that says Jesus is okay, but he's just not king. No, I, I, I cry, I summon God. In fact, what he's doing is essentially he's tattletelling on the world to God. Good tattletelling on the world to God. Now, I miss the days when my kids would tattletale on each other. Just, oh, I loved it. He's not good. She's being horrible because when my wife and I would do, we'd play court, right? We'd play court and said, or you build your case against that rascal and you build your case against that rascal and the chief of the house, their mother, will be the judge and she'll decide. Tattletale. That's what the pilgrim is doing. I'm in distress. I'm suffering, sorrow, grief, pain. I'm not, in, I'm not in Jerusalem yet. God, I'm going to tell you everything about my pilgrimage, my mission that brings me distress. And this is where we'll close. In, in the whole of the New Testament, there probably isn't a finer book other than 2 Timothy that tells us of the real pain associated with living in Christ, living for God in this, in this messy, muddled world. Paul writes... 
the end of near 30 years of ministry. He's facing execution. He's in prison. And this is what he says, 2 Timothy 1.8. Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord, but join, we, join with me in suffering for the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.15. You know everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. 2 Timothy 3.10. You know of the persecutions I endured. 2 Timothy 3.11. You know that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, Joe, that you can't live under the radar forever. You can't. Suffering was very real for Paul. He had to endure it. He was a flesh and blood person who found opposition because of his loyalties to Christ. And he found it difficult to handle. I.e. verse 1, Psalm 120. I am in distress. And that's the issue. We're going to be attacked. Not for silly things. But for our God-centered loyalties. It will cause us distress. That is the normal life for the normal Christian on their normal God-given pilgrimage. So what do we do? We summon God. We tattletale on the world. We do our duty. And we keep on that narrow path. It's It's a lovely path. And we don't think that distress will never come to us. Because of Christ. It will. It will. And when it does, Psalm 121.1, which we'll get to next time, we lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the maker of earth. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the right that Jesus Christ has won for us at Calvary's cross so that when the day of distress come, as it will, when we essentially tattletale on the world, Father, that by the sufferings and death of Christ at Calvary, we have full access to your powerful throne, the highest throne, and we are completely convinced, God, that you will give and do what's best. So help us to love the world in the right way and not love the world in the wrong way. Help us to be true to our pilgrimage journey. Help us to not give up. Help us to persevere. Help us to be good at being a pilgrim, God, so that when the day of evil comes, we won't be surprised by it. Drop to our knees because of it, certainly, but it won't take us off course. It won't take us from the path. It won't take us, Father, from our pilgrim's progress. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be to all who believe, both now and forevermore. Amen.